Well, Lord Jesus, we're, we're grateful. We thank you that it's not colder outside. Uh, we could be in um, Antarctica, uh, someplace else breaking the ice on the lake to, um, to obey your commandment. But um, we don't have to do that. Lord, I thank you for all of the, the people that have felt it in their heart and their conviction to obey your command to be baptized, to identify with you, to communicate to the world that they belong to you and not to the world. So we thank you for them, and we pray that you would just lavish your grace upon them. And Lord, we thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, you are Lord of the church. You get to call the shots and uh, in, in every regard. And if we're going to yield to your lordship, we have to learn your word and we have to obey its instruction. So I pray that you teach us this morning and that you grant us grace and courage to do what you've called us to do. So Lord, thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, go ahead and be seated. Uh, Today, as I told you last week, we're going to be talking about uh, corporate exclusion. Uh, That sounds like lots of fun. But not just talking about this, the scripture's command to do it, Jesus' command, but some of the logic and necessity behind it. And then I wanted to end on perhaps a little bit lighter note, but uh, our, our post-sin responsibility. When we sin against a brother or sister, uh, we have a responsibility. And not, you know, of course, when a brother sins against us, we have the responsibility to go confront them. Matthew 18, verse 15. But then, if we've sinned against a sibling in Christ, we can't let it lie. Uh, We have a responsibility to go to them in humility and repentance, to apologize and do our best to be reconciled. So we'll talk about that as well. Let's begin with uh, corporate exclusion. This is the, uh, the final step, as we've talked about in Matthew 18. Um... We haven't done a ton of it. But this is, after we have exhausted the, the, the biblical protocol regarding the unrepentant believer, uh, this is the uncomfortable stage uh, that we come to, it, but a necessary one. And depending on the nature of the sin, and as we've talked about, uh, the sinner themselves, uh, the final stage can serve one or two purposes, even both. But of course, the purpose is to restore the believer, but oftentimes, especially uh, depending on the sin or the sinner, it's, it, it's done to protect the fellowship of the church. Okay, So let's take a look. We mentioned corporate exclusion in both Matthew 18 and as well as 1 Corinthians 5, but we didn't go into a ton of detail. I've saved it until now because um, it, it is perhaps the most difficult thing in the process uh, but maybe the most necessary. Uh, but, but above all, we, we can never forget that it is the command of Christ who, mind you, loves the unrepentant believer more than we do, and also he knows better than we do. We can safely say that, can't we? He knows better than we do when it comes to restoring them to the fellowship through repentance. Those who do things differently those who do things contrary to the command of Christ, they're, they're arrogant, they're presumptuous, and they're rebellious. That's just the truth. And we do not have the prerogative or the authority to do things differently than what Jesus 
says. Okay? If he's laid down the rules, uh, we need to follow them in this regard. So we want to do our best to understand the instruction, so we might do it most effectively for the sake of those people and for the glory of God. And again, as, as I said before, we must always keep in mind that without repentance, there's no re- restoration. Restora- or repentance must precede uh, restoration and fellowship with the church. So to kick this off, let's pick it up in Matthew 18, verse 17. We've already gone through this uh, whole section of Scripture, but it's this particular one that uh, everything sort of comes to head. And it's at this point in Jesus' instruction, the unrepentant believer has been confronted the first and the second time without any success of gaining their repentance. And And so now the situation has been brought to the whole fellowship of the church. And as Jesus describes it, the person still has not relented. Uh, They insist on continuing in sin. They will not repent. So Jesus instructs his disciples to have the whole church exclude them, to exclude them. And really, they're excluding themselves by their actions. And by exclusion, Jesus essentially... Uh, gives us a no-contact order with that person, telling every individual in the church to, he says, treat the unrepentant person as you would a heathen and a tax collector. Now, as we talked about when we were in that section, uh, heathens, tax tax collectors, that had a historical, cultural context to it. And uh, the, the heathen was the pagan who the Jews despised because of their religion, because of their practices, things they ate, all kinds of stuff. Uh, So they despised them, they avoided them. The tax collector, he was a Jew uh, living in Israel collecting taxes for Rome. But he wasn't just collecting taxes for Rome, he was collecting more taxes than he needed to. And so tax collectors were viewed as a traitor to the nation and uh, they were scoundrels, they were whatever, so they were um, excluded. The Jews did not associate with them. And so Jesus is telling them, I want you to treat them as you would the unrepentant believer, that is, as a pagan or a tax collector, those that you would normally avoid and stay away from. Okay? And the reason is this person has rejected the church's call to repentance which is, as Jesus explains later, to reject God's call to repentance. He brings this up in verse 18. He, he says, Assuredly, I say to you, of course, in this regard, whenever you bind on, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So if the church has made this decision regarding an unrepentant believer, Jesus is saying, the authority of heaven is backing whatever the church does, as long as the church is doing it in accord with the scriptures. Okay, yeah. The Lord supports the decision. This same instruction is found in 1 Corinthians 5, uh, which actually was followed by the church. So this is a real example of an incident in a church. I don't want to revisit all the details. Um, but Paul says, regarding this unrepentant person who is living in in sexual sin. He says, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, notice that, when you are gathered together, along with my spirit, 
with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Did you, did you see how many times in those two verses Paul invoked the name of Jesus? Twice in verse 4, once in verse 5. How serious do you think Paul is being? In the name, in the power. It's all coming back to the Lord. This is his decision on the matter. Okay. Paul's serious. Also notice how Paul says that I want you to do this when you've all come together as a church. This letter was to the whole church, so he's speaking to every individual in the church. I want you to wait to make this decision and, and to take this course of action when all the church members are in the building together. That sounds like a really exciting meeting. Yeah. Everyone must be a witness to the person's unrepentant sin, and everyone must participate in what is about to go down. Now, in the context, the sexual sins of this particular person are not simply being ignored or overlooked by this church, but actually, Paul says, you guys are you're boasting about it. You, you are celebrating this in the fellowship. I think it's so weird. I mean, what is it with people having pride over our sexual perversity? It's so strange in human nature. I mean, we know it's wrong, and so what we do is we celebrate it. We, we have our parades, we have our flags, we, have our, we, we, we talk about it on social media, all of this stuff, hoping that we can somehow placate our guilt and normalize our behavior, and in the end, what we want to do is we want to overthrow God and any standard of morality that there is. We're, we want absolute autonomy so we can make all decisions for ourselves. It's not going to do any good in the end, of course. But, you know, it's one thing for the world to do this. It's absolutely reprehensible for those who have been purchased by the blood of Christ, uh, redeemed for his glory and his purposes to do this. Sex is holy. And so every act, every sexual act outside of God's design for marriage is a moral disaster to the persons involved, to the families, to all of society. And we're definitely seeing that now. So to safeguard all of this, to, to protect the church, Paul tells the church, wait until everyone's together so that the church can collectively identify the sinner and then collectively exclude him from the fellowship. And Paul says, delivering him over to Satan. Well, that seems a little extreme, Paul. How bad can it be? Well, because Paul is reporting God's position on the matter. I mean, that is a, a, an evangelical fundamental that when Paul writes, he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So this is God's perspective on the matter. It's so bad that God would have us turn that person over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh so they might be saved on the day of Christ. Now, I dealt with that and unpacked that a little bit when we went through the whole chapter of 1 Corinthians 5. I think it was in part 3 or 4 of our study. You can go there uh, for the skinny on that if you want. Uh, I don't have time for it this morning. But in the text, Paul follows up with this saying. He says, I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reveler or a drunkard, or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. So first, what does Paul mean by someone who is named a brother? We could also insert named a sister. This is someone who claims to be a Christian. They're named a brother. 
They've been a part of the Christian community. They, they've participated in our, our gatherings. They've participated in worship here. This person is recognized by us as a believer. So Paul is saying if one of these persons behaves in the following manner without repentance, and we've gone through this whole process of Matthew 18, he says every individual believer in the community, the believing community, should avoid any and all company with them. We should not associate with them. Paul says don't even eat with such a person. Okay. So scripture is not simply forbidding them to attend our gatherings. And I've seen churches do that. This person has gone through the process of Matthew 18, and uh, they haven't repented, and, and so the elders allow them to come to the fellowship, but they're not really allowed to fellowship. They're not really allowed to worship, participate, but they get to come. That's not what Jesus, that's not what Paul is instructing us to do. Okay? This is a no-contact order. So if you are perhaps invited to a barbecue or a dinner party at someone's house and you discover that such an unrepentant person is there or will be there, the Holy Spirit would have us humbly obey Christ and either dismiss ourselves or just disinvite ourselves. You know, we are called as the community of Christ to take sin as seriously as God does. And by taking it serious, we should end our association with people until they repent. Until they repent. Now, trust me, I, I realize what a position this can put you in. I've been in it many times, okay? Some pretty awkward and uncomfortable. Goodness, what do we do? Let me just give a couple examples. You know, what do you do if you have a job where you have to interact with people, like a grocery store, and this person comes through your checkout line? Now what? Now what? Well, you do your job, okay? Exactly as you would if a stranger came through your line. That's just what you do. You know, what if this person approaches you on the street or at the park and just talks to you as if nothing has happened, like they have not been excluded from the church? This has happened to me too many times. What do you do now? This is a perfect time to do what Paul tells the Thessalonians. You tell them that we love you, but um, I'm going to be loyal to Jesus, and I'm not going to associate with you until you repent. I will remind you of what the decision of the church and of Christ has made regarding your unrepentant sin. We love you. We urge you to repent. We want you back in the fellowship. But this kind of scenario isn't going to happen. Okay? It's a good reminder to them. It's uncomfortable, but it's necessary. We do not want to disobey Christ by interacting with the church. If the church has excluded someone for unrepentant sin, please, please listen carefully and you ignore the mandate and maintain fellowship with that person, you now be, need to be confronted and called to repentance because you've, you're, you're in violation of the word of God and you are hindering the work of God in that person's life. God has decided to bring them to repentance by these means. And what you are doing by your interaction is you're saying, I know better. I can usurp Christ's authority. I can, I can do that. Okay, Don't do that. Don't do that. The reason for exclusion is to shame the sinner in a good way. Paul says, And if anyone does not obey our words in this epistle, note that person, that is, keep an eye on them, point them out to everybody, and do not keep company with him so that he may be ashamed. He may be ashamed. He may experience 
the necessary wholesome guilt that comes with unrepentant sin. Okay? The exclusion is to bring them to a place of shame, to be ashamed of themselves. You see, the problem is if other believers keep company with the unrepentant person, it'll help that person feel more justified in their sin. That's what it does. You know, sinners love company. That's why the world does what it does when it's acting the way that it does. It tries to gather people around them. It makes them feel better about their sin. It makes them feel justified. And they don't feel the pressure of the Holy Spirit as much as they push him away. We don't want to hinder what the Holy Spirit's trying to do. They will not feel bad for their sin. They won't be ashamed of themselves as they ought if we do not allow them to bear the consequences of sin. Okay? So please do not get in the way of what God is doing. David prayed once. He said, God, fill their hearts with shame that they may seek your name, O God. How many of you guys have experienced guilt in your life that it has driven you toward repentance? How well do you think a generation will do if they're allowed to experience guilt but then told that it's not a big deal? We, we want our children, we want the unbeliever, and we want believers to experience guilt when they sin. That is a gift from the Holy Spirit. It's His grace to turn people around. How dare us get in the way and be an obstruction? Okay. So this kind of godly sorrow is a benefit to the soul. Okay. It should go unhindered, and we should not condone it. When the Corinthian church uh, was so far out there, if you've read 1 Corinthians, you realize that uh, Corinth, uh, at the t- before and during the time that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, the church was messed up, okay, morally, theologically. They were into all kinds of things. Paul, in 1 Corinthians, he spent nearly 15 chapters rebuking them and he meant for them to be ashamed. He meant for them to be ashamed. And it was through the sorrow of their sins that they repented. Paul wrote to them again in his second letter, celebrating their repentance. He said, now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So look, if someone is experiencing shame because of sin that has led to them being excluded from the church, it is a godly, or we could say a God-induced kind of sorrow. A God-induced kind of sorrow. And only an uninformed or presumptuous person would interfere with what God commands and with what God is doing. Well, guess what? No one in this room is uninformed anymore. And that leaves us with presumptuous sin. And in the scriptures, it's one of the most dangerous sins. Okay. Be mindful of this. So I think it's important at this juncture to point out the result of the Corinthian church uh, when they excluded the man in 1 Corinthians 5. Look at this. This punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man. So that, on the contrary, you ought to rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. So Paul's instruction from 1 Corinthians 5 was the right course of action, as he was led by the Spirit, for this unrepentant person. Excluding the sinful man for gross sin was sufficient to bring him to repentance. 
God's purpose was successful. It was successful. God knew what he was doing. The church's obedience secured God's heart for the person. But what the church had failed to do, what they had failed to do, was restore the man back to the fellowship after he repented. I wonder how many times that's happened in church history. You're a sinner, we don't like you, you're just not welcome at all, even if you repent. Yeah, so they did that, this poor guy. So Paul continues, Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him, for to this end I also wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. Do you think that Paul wrote to the Corinthians so that the Holy Spirit could only test the church of Corinth? I highly doubt it. The word of Christ is to his church. Okay. It's a corporate exclusion of an unrepentant believer. Listen, is corporate obedience to God's word. It's not just the necessary means by which God restores wayward people. What we do with the unrepentant is a, is a test of the church's loyalty to God. It's behaving as God designed the church. So let us be careful as a church to yield to Christ's lordship in all matters of faith and practice. All matters. Okay, let's, let's end with that. This brings us to the, the final subject with, within our greater study, and that is our personal responsibility after we have offended one of our siblings in Christ. How many guys have done this? How many guys have sinned against a brother or sister in the Lord? Daily, yeah. If you would, uh, please turn your Bibles to Matthew 5. Matthew 5. I'll be reading verse 21 through 24 to you. That's from uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. I didn't know how to title this whole thing. So that's what you got. There's no uh, historical, theological, fancy word for it. So you get what you get. Matthew chapter 5. Verses 21 through 24, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, you're thinking, I've never said Raka to anybody. <laughs> it literally means empty head. We have a lot of terms for that. It's, it's like saying stupid. Shall be in danger of the council, but whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, you've called him Raka, you've called her a fool, angry without a cause. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Then come and offer your gift. Look back at verse 23. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and you get there and it occurs to you, I called my buddy Raka. I was upset with him and I slandered the image of God in him. That's what that's all about, by the way according to James, slandering the image of God in someone. It occurs to you that he has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. Now, in the new covenant, we have no temple, and therefore we have no altar to offer our gift on. 
And, and therefore, this passage lacks immediate application to us, but the principle behind it remains for us. We do have a gift to offer. Hebrews 13, 15 says, Therefore, by him, that is Christ, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. So we do not have an altar for worship, but we have worship nonetheless. And in our place and and for our sins, God the Father has offered God the Son on the altar at Calvary. And for that, we offer praise and worship and thanksgiving. We offer him the fruit of our lips, as the author of Hebrews says. But the scriptures make it clear that everything offered to the Lord must be without spot or blemish. You guys recall that? Our offering should be untainted. It should be worthy of him. And when it is offered, the scriptures say, it is considered holy to the Lord. But if we have offended our sibling in Christ, we've mistreated them in some way prior to offering praise to God, our offering then is contaminated. And therefore, Jesus says we should not offer our gift at that time. We shouldn't do it at that time. We should not come into a worship setting like this one and pretend like nothing is wrong as though we did nothing to offend. He's saying, don't do that. Don't come into these doors. Raise your hands. Sing unto the Lord as if what you did yesterday or on the way to church did not happen. Yeah, Don't do that. If you come to worship knowing that you've sinned against your spouse or you've dishonored or disobeyed your parents, you've, you've snubbed a brother in Christ, you've cheated a sister, but you're here to worship, you're wasting your time. Because the offering, I would be wasting my time. The offering would be contaminated by unrepentant sin, which is, you guys, listen, it's a presumptuous act of worship. It's presumptuous. The psalmist says rightly, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. So the whole time you're worshiping, you're just a fraud. You're wasting your time. It's just as Jesus said, if you come to the altar with your gift, and if it comes to mind, if you remember that your brother is something against you, he says, do not... Do not, it's a command. Do not make your offering because God will not receive it. So Jesus says, first, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. I listened to a Bible teacher say one time, well, if it, come, if it comes to your mind during worship and you intend to do it, keep worshiping. Please don't do that. Do what Jesus says and not what a preacher says. Okay, listen to his voice. God does not want us coming here to make our offering of praise and thanksgiving without reconciliation to those that we've hurt. You know, some of you perhaps were ungodly to your children on the way to fellowship this morning. How many of you have done that? Children, how many of your parents have done that? <laughs> Let's be completely transparent. And then, of course, we use our children's disobedience as an excuse for the way that we behaved. But I've been through the scriptures a couple times, and I don't think that God will ever hold our children accountable for the way that we act. Okay. You see, we cannot sin against our children all morning getting ready for church and then come and worship as though nothing happened between us. We should humble ourselves and apologize to our children. And you know, next time or, or whatever is, is, is happening, if they do not get ready at the pace and the manner we desire, we should take responsibility for that. And we should apply some better child training. We should get up earlier. We should be more disciplined because, by the way, we're the parent. Amen? Yeah. You know, there's something that I think that 
kids of all generations could do without, and that's being mistreated all morning by us, and then seeing us worship with God's people as though nothing happened. Hypocrisy is bad enough, but parental religious hypocrisy is the worst. And as you know, as when you were a young person, you have an uncanny ability to take record of that, and it sticks with you. But see, children can also recognize humility and contrition in a parent, especially when they apologize and change their ways. Yeah, the greatest testimony is a changed life, amen? That's it. You know, couples can mistreat one another all week, and then they can come to church holding hands, <laughs> smiles on their faces, and then worship together as if they did not verbally abuse each other all week long. It's nuts. It's nuts. Now, God, of course, is always worthy of worship, regardless of what we've done, but the problem is when we worship in an unworthy manner, rather we worship in an unworthy manner when we have regard for our sin. We could care less. We must first do our best to be reconciled to an offended brother or sister before we just try to enjoy ourselves, before we celebrate with the Lord. The same principle surrounds the Lord's table in Paul's instruction in 1 Corinthians 11. We mention this every first Sunday of the month when we take communion. Paul says that every person should examine themselves lest they take of the Lord's body in an unworthy manner. And he says when they do that, they actually heap judgment upon themselves. And Paul says, I want you to judge yourself so that you will not be judged with the world. Come to the Lord's table in a worthy manner. We should not give our offering to the Lord. And we should not celebrate the Lord's offering for us without first examining ourselves for unrepentant sin. We should. We should be reconciled to our brothers and sisters first. Now, of course, if someone will not be reconciled, even after we humble ourselves, we apologize and repent, that is on them. Do you understand? If you've made your best effort to be reconciled and they will not, that's on them. At that point, we may present our offering without any conflict in our conscience. Amen? Okay. Now, I have a few people in my life uh, that I've gone to, I've humbled myself, I've confessed my sins, um, and they just won't have anything of it. Okay. At that point, uh, and I've actually done it more than once, but at that point then I just turn them over to the Lord and say, Lord, I pray that you'd soften their heart and that they would trust in you and forgive. But now I can trust with a clear conscience that I can go before God and worship and celebrate before him. Okay. But not until then. It's absolutely important. If you regard iniquity in your heart, and I don't care for how long, the scriptures say God won't hear you. Okay. But you might hear his voice say, I'm not talking to you until you repent. Okay. Until you repent. So in this study of the ministry of restoration, our goal always is to restore believers, unrepentant believers, to the fellowship of the church. But we have a contingency Without repentance, there is no restoration. And when we've come to that final stage, that most uncomfortable stage in Jesus' instruction, we must, as a church, corporately exclude people. Otherwise, we will hinder the work of God in their lives. Okay? No one can restore people as good as God can. So we need to trust Him okay, with, with their life. And then when they've repented, we send them to another church. I'm kidding. <laughs> We bring them back in. And the story that Jesus gives in Matthew 18 before that instruction is the story of the lost sheep. One out of a hundred. 
And what does the shepherd do? He leaves the 99 and he goes after the one. And when he finds him, what does he do? He celebrates. So when, re- when sinners repent, we want to celebrate with them. We want to restore them. We want to reaffirm our love to them, Paul says. All right, that's what I have for you. Uh, if you weren't here the whole time for our study, uh, and you're, if you're interested, uh, there's seven of them. Uh, you can find those on our webpage. You can find them on YouTube. Uh, when I come back to the pulpit, I'm going to be gone for a couple Sundays. We have uh, Aaron's going to preach, our missionary from Kenya. And I think, John, are you going to preach? I can't remember who's preaching. Somebody really good. <laughs> so, yeah. And then we'll get back to Galatians in July. And, and uh, super excited to wrap that up with you guys. So, why don't you please stand up. And we'll pray. Please don't forget the baptism. Uh, we'd love to have you there to, to um, be a blessing to those that are being baptized. Bring your umbrella if you need to. We won't make fun of you. I won't make fun of you. What time? Uh, we're going to try to get there at about 1 o'clock. So after second service, it's going to be a race to get there. All right, let's pray. Well, again, Lord, as you've said... Why do you call me Lord and you don't do the things that I say? And the implication is that those that call you Lord but don't obey, you are not their Lord. So Lord, I pray that you would grant us grace to do the hard things that we find in Scripture. Lord, we don't ever want to have one of our brothers or sisters here be excluded from the fellowship. We want to intercept them in advance, as you tell us in Matthew 18. But Lord, if it does come to that, I pray that collectively we would entrust that person's life to you, knowing that you possess the wisdom and the love to do what's best for them. So Lord, thank you for your word. And um, yeah, we're just grateful, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right.